Hello and thank you for listening. I am so excited to say that I now have a Patreon that you can go to. I'll make sure I include the information in the show notes. But I have multiple tiers you can choose from. $1, $3, and $5 tiers. The $1 Spooky Soul tier gives you access to an online Discord community that is filled with fellow spooky souls. If you want to talk about creepy, cozy things, you might be interested in that. The $2 Cryptid Creature tier lets you have that online community, as well as giving you early access to episodes, bonus content, and secret bonus content. And the $5 Kachu Cuddler tier, named after my fluffy, squish-faced kitty, lets you have that online community, early access to episodes, and the bonus material, but it also lets you suggest future episodes and I'll shout out your name during each episode. Thank you so much for your listenership and support, and I can't wait to talk to you more soon. Hello, and welcome to Creepy Core and Folklore, the show about creatures, encounters, old tales, and myths. I'm your host, Iona Wayland a dark fantasy author, mental health professional, and overall curious person. I want to join other spooky souls and hear about these unusual stories. Hello, spooky soul, and welcome to episode 73 where I get to talk about all sorts of fun witchy stuff and about the current symbolism and past symbolism of the witch. So before I begin, I wanted to have a huge thank you to Brad slash Bradley Loomis. Thank you so much, Brad. I really appreciate it. I love that you're in the Kachu Cuddler tier of my Creepy Core and Folklore Patreon. You really help make these episodes worthwhile and give me the extra oomph to keep making them. So let's deep dive into the symbolism of the witch and we're going to unravel these depictions to see where from whether fear or power or both that they were given to particularly femme people. There's a wonderful podcaster that makes the Witch Wave podcast. Her name is Pam Grossman. She wrote this book that I just saw like in this independent uh, bookstore in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. It's so nice. I think it's called Four Seasons Books. It's very lovely in there. But this was years ago. And it's when her book Waking the Witch had just come out. And I saw it and I love the cover. And I was like, what is this? So I got it. And it was so cool. Um, And so a lot of my references will be to her book. And also I'll include a link to her podcast so that you can Um, experience the Witch Wave podcast if you're feeling like a little witchy or that's something you're interested in learning more about. But if I say think of a witch, there's probably going to be a specific image that comes to mind. Um, And you'll see those pointy hats and those broomsticks. And there's been a lot of fascination um, with them, but also fear with witches. And it's deeply ingrained in our culture that kind of has this mix of intrigue, power, and fear all in one. Um, And so we're going to look at the historical context and evolution through literature, folklore, and pop culture so we can kind of shed some light on what's shaped our perception of witches over the centuries. 
the roots of which symbolism can be traced back to ancient civilizations. And typically this is done in pre-Christian Europe, um, but they are all over the world. Um, but witches are often revered as healers and seers. However, with the rise of Christianity, which I've talked a lot about the whole assimilation and conversion, these practices were then demonized that led to the association of witches with the devil or dark magic or evil. And it caused the folks to be ostracized and even hunted down. And I know I keep talking about it, but being able to be in Salem, Massachusetts for Halloween was very cool. But there was a lot, the whole basis of why that's so, such a creepy town and has a lot of folklore behind it was there were both real and um, just like folkloric stories of all these crazy things that happened there. And the very, very beginning was the Salem witch trials where there were these, here's my theory on what happened. This is my theory. I don't know if this is proven or what, or if it ever, if we'll ever know truly what went on. But I think there were these young girls. I think there was a gross man who was grooming them. And then when they started wanting to get married or they started telling people about it, he needed to groom not just the girls, but the community, his community um, into not believing his victims. And so he painted them as witches and they were systematically killed and they were forced to give false um Uh, narratives as to what went on. And um, it's just really sad that that happened because whether the person was actually a witch or whether the person was um, a victim of grooming, no matter what, these were like young girls that were kind of tossed into the forefront to take the hit instead of potentially the townsfolk or a person perpetuating a crime or whatever was going on. And you'll see that hatred of women, dare I say misogyny, that works its way throughout the history of witchcraft. So in the Middle Ages, there was a surge of witch hunts and trials, just like I was talking about, that reached its peak in the 16th and 17th centuries. There were thousands of women and some men, which I did not know about before researching this, that were accused of witchcraft that led to mass hysteria and brutal executions. And during this time, witches became synonymous with malevolence, casting spells, causing diseases, consorting with demons. And like, for instance, William Shakespeare play, Shakespeare's play, and I'm going to say the M word. So if you have a play coming up, like cover your ears for like a couple seconds, Macbeth, that portrayed witches as agents of chaos and that manipulated the fate and human actions. And it was actually doing research for this that I didn't realize that they were the ones that did the bubble, bubble, toil and trouble um, sound. I thought that was like a pop culture thing. And it's not. It's a Shakespearean thing. Um, And the three witches in the play contributed significantly to enduring the image of witches as sinister beings. In Gothic literature, there was an emphasis on the supernatural um, there. And that also perpetuated the image of witches as malevolent figures. Writers like Edgar Allan Poe. Come on, Edgar Allan Poe. I expected more from you, dude. I really like Edgar Allan Poe. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Both of them uh, concocted tales where witches symbolize this forbidden knowledge. And actually, okay, now that I, I I subconsciously wrote that, the whole Adam and Eve thing 
um, reminds me of like, oh, this woman dared to taste the fruit of the forbidden knowledge and she shouldn't have done that. I think that's interesting. I'm not calling Eve a witch and I'm not saying that that did or didn't happen. I'm just saying that I think it's very interesting that that is a thought process that's in our like psyche here. But uh, Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne talked about these women that had to deal with consequences of meddling with the occult. Um, And specifically in The Fall of the House of the Usher for Edgar Allan Poe and Young Goodman Brown for Nathaniel Hawthorne. In European folklore, witches are seen as women with supernatural abilities who can shapeshift and cast spells. I know I talked about this a bit in the Curiosity Cat episode where the whole cats have nine lives thing. Um, that comes from like, they thought that witches could transform into a cat, but on the ninth time that they transformed into a cat, they were stuck as a cat. And that's why cats are often seen as that. And I'll get more into symbolism of witches in just a second. Also in European folklore, there was that concept of flying on broomsticks and gathering for sabbats. And that became an integral witch mythology depiction. Also in American folklore, I know I just alluded to this before, but there, particular during the Salem witch trials, witches were seen as agents of the devil and they were capable of causing harm and destruction. And that fear of witches led to the persecution of innocent individuals that left a lasting impact on American culture. If you go somewhere and you're like, I'm a witch or I'm into witchcraft or I'm into the occult and stuff, that is met with interest and fear at the same time. It's very sad. In modern literature, Marion Zimmer Bradley's The Mists of Avalon and Terry Pratchett's Disc Discworld series, which I need to read both of those. I've heard a lot of good things about Discworld, um, but also uh, I'm not as familiar with Marion Zimmer Bradley's uh, works. But that reimagines witches as powerful, complex characters that challenges the traditional stereotypes and empowers women. And that leads into um, how witch, if you're like, okay, picture a witch, you're going to have those symbols show up in a certain type of depiction that I'll go over in a second. But on the flip side, if you think of like what makes someone a witch, it's usually a femme presenting person. It's typically someone who's kind of on the fringe. It's usually someone who's very worldly, very open-minded, and who is non-traditional as a woman, whatever that means to you, um, because whatever traditional means is going to be based off of how we were raised and what we were taught. So it's very interesting to see how you would think of like what makes someone have that witchy energy. Um, for me personally, when I think of someone with witchy energy, it's typically someone who's intelligent, who critically thinks who's very curious and maybe queer, maybe a bit queer, which we love here. Um, In film and television, there are movies and TV shows like The Craft and Charmed that have popularized the image of young empowered witches, and it explores themes of sisterhood, feminism, and self-discovery. And this symbolism of witches is rooted in centuries upon centuries of history, literature, folklore, and it's very multifaceted. Very multifaceted depiction of fear, empowerment, and cultural beliefs, while modern interpretations have started to challenge that traditional stereotyping and that image of witches continues to captivate our imagination. Something else that I I forgot to bring up a little bit ago where I'm like imagining a witch person. 
Um, I imagine a Latina and maybe that's because I am Latina. But I remember I, I think of someone that's Latina or Latinx. And I think it's because, you know, you're I, at least I was taught to like fear the bruja or don't go into a brujeria. But if you think about South America before it was colonized by the Spanish, I think everyone in South America, indigenous South Americans, um, that I mean, I guess everyone was a bruja. Um, there's just brujos galore because <laughs> there was no Christianity yet and there was no con- um, conversion yet. And I'm not saying that, you know, if you come from certain things that you can't be a Christian because I know a bajillion amazing Christians that are like focused on loving people and loving humanity and wanting our society to grow with empathy and love. I just, I love that type of Christianity, but ancient Christianity was a little ruthless um, to say the least. And there are some folks who are Christian now who use their religion and it's not just Christians, obviously. Every single religion has those zealots that twist their beliefs they twist what their teachings into something they believe and how to perpetuate hatred. So all of that just to say, I think that there's a reason behind my imagination of what the modern witch looks like. And it's going to look different for you. I would love to hear about what you you imagine as the modern witch versus like the traditional witch. So let's go over some symbolisms. Again, I'm mostly going to take this from Pam Grossman's Waking the Witch book. So apparently way, way back in the day, um, I know last episode I talked about how women were not allowed to have certain jobs. I gave that as an example as to why there are certain like minority groups that all have certain types of jobs or are thought of of having a certain type of job because of historical factors of not letting certain groups of people work unless it's in this particular um, trade or craft or um, white collar job or pink collar job for women specifically, there were these like bars in place that kept people from fully figuring out what it is and what kind of occupation they wanted to do. So there's this clustering of certain types of people in occupations. And so in times, women were not allowed to have jobs. However, and this is very interesting to me, they were allowed to brew beer. And so with that in mind, Pam Grossman goes through why there are certain depictions of women and like these were the working women of the time. So cats as familiars. Why is that a thing? Why are witches and cats so intertwined? It's because they had the grains and the malt and stuff to brew beer, which means there's a lot of mice, which means they need cats as mousers for that. And they would bring their cats everywhere and they had a very good tie to their cats. The pointy or conical hats is very important because when you're in an open air market, for example, brewing beer, serving beer or mead or whatever's going on, you're going to have to stand out. And when you're surrounded by men who typically on average, the cis male body is a lot taller or a bit taller and beefier than a cis femme body you're going to need to wear something that makes you stand out. And so these brewery women would have these tall conical hats that were easily decipherable of like, okay, that's where I can go to get fresh beer or brewed beer or whatever. But also um, 
it's very tall. And so you can look for the little pointy hats or the cone hats to see where everybody is. Also, think about how you brew beer. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of seeing it done or doing it yourself. Me and my husband have brewed several batches of beer. They always taste bad. I don't know what we're doing wrong, or maybe I'm a picky bitch. I'm not sure. Um, and he, he said that he was going to maybe potentially make a kombucha, which I think would be interesting. I'm down to try that because I'm not a big drinker. I'm not anti-drinking or anything, um, but I just, it, there's a, th- this is a side note. There's like a heavy history of alcoholism in my family. And even though addiction can happen to anybody, um, Alcohol is one of the only, as of right now, this might change the more we learn about the brain and the body and genetics and stuff like that. Um, But alcoholism is one of the only genetic precursors to alcoholism that someone can have. And so I'm like, I'm just not going to touch it uh, or I'm going to touch it as little as possible. So I'm not like a big drinker just because my fear of alcoholism um, was there. Um, And now I think after you turn like 21 or 25 or something like that, it the the possibility of becoming addicted to alcohol is like less or something. I think it's because your brain's fully developed. I don't really know. I, I don't have the science to back this up. So take this with a grain of salt. But whenever uh, my husband and I brew beer, like, why am I even talking about this? I don't even remember why. Oh, I guess I'm explaining that I'm not sometimes whenever I say, oh, I'm not really into drinking, then a bunch of people get really nervous and they're worried I'm going to judge them. I do not judge like barely ever. Um, and especially not with drinking. Oh my gosh. But, um, but it's neat to see like, if you, you gather around a cauldron, like I've still made it with my husband. There's this, there is, it's a big cauldron or a big, like, um, stainless steel cylinder thing where you stir this bubbling, it, it feel, I feel like I'm making tea and, and there's this big sock where you put all of like the malt or the grains or whatever that you want to use or the hops. Ew. I am judging you if you like hoppy stuff. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, it's I'm just very sensitive to bitter tastes. I, I don't like them. Um, but you put it in this thing and you stir it. And like, I remember making it and it was with my husband at one point and we tried to make blueberry beer. That one was pretty good. Um, but I remember stirring it being like, I'm a bruja. And he was like, what is going on? <laughs> and so I was able to tell him this a couple years ago about the symbolism behind witches. Um, but, you know, you've got that cauldron going and you're like, hey, fill up my growler or my howler or whatever with this uh, mead or brew or whatever's going on. And they would take their out of their cauldron that they were stirring and they were, would serve it. I think that's very cool. Or they would put it in, they would cork it and they'd be like, okay, let this sit for however long and let it ferment. And I, I, I think that's really interesting. Also, broomsticks, now this one's a double-edged sword here, uh, but broomsticks is a lot of sweeping. They would have to sweep the grains away. They would need to make sure that their workspace is clear in the open markets, but also at home so that the mi- mice would not pick up any of the... Uh, pieces of grains that they would really love to eat and they were all stored away in like kind of airtight as airtight as it as it could be back in the day okay so now we're gonna get into a little bit of like anti-indigenous stuff and some anti-semitism stuff so bear with me here because this gets a little bit heavier um, and talks about some stereotyping 
So a lot of times, uh, witches are seen as having curly hair and a hooked nose. These are very common caricatures that are made and projected on the Jewish folk. Um, they're also seen sometimes as having green skin and green, which is my favorite color, but is often associated with someone being devilish or demonic. And there's also that thing of like, oh, they'll steal your children, which is a very common stereotype for both the Jewish folk and the indigenous folk and the Romani people. So if you think of like the curly hair, hooked nose, green skin, consorting with the devil, all that fun stuff, um, that is seen as pre-Christian and evil or pre-Christian and like um, being scary. And so if you think about the Romani people, if you think about the Jewish folk, and if you think of the indigenous peoples, that is going to be associated with them. Um, And even though that's not true. And the whole like, I'm going to steal your children. um, I could go into a whole other thing about that. Um, I'm not gonna. So just bear in mind that this is, and obviously all of this is not just uh, groups of people specific, but also women specific. Um, You don't see uh, depictions of a witch as a man very often. Sometimes you might see a warlock or something, but those aren't as notable as, you know, kind of keeping women in their place, so to speak. There's also that that leads into the ugly versus beautiful category where like beauty is in the eye of those who hold the majority of power. So I know I talked a lot about this actually in the like, what does beauty mean? That kind of thing. Um, I talked about that in the werewolf episode, believe it or not, Um, talking about like, oh, they're not beautiful. And there's also this psychology uh, fallacy, thought fallacy, which means like it's a problematic way of thinking that's not true, um, called uh, what is beautiful is good. And that's in quotes. So, of course, if something is bad or evil, they're going to look hideous and ugly. And of course, if someone's good and virtuous, they're going to look absolutely beautiful, whatever beauty means to the eye of the beholder. So I think it's very interesting when you can really see this in um, the the one that comes to mind is the Wizard of Oz. You've got the evil, wicked witch of the death who wicked witch of the death. Oh, my gosh. West. But actually, that kind of works. <laughs> But the Wicked Witch of the West, um, who has the green skin and the hooked nose and the curly hair and the pointy hat and the dark clothing, and she's ugly and evil. And then Glenda the Good Witch is blonde and has a little nose and has pale skin and is wearing pink puffy stuff. And I think that is like the best like symbolism for what I'm talking about and trying to depict depict here. And also side note to the side note, the what is beautiful is good fallacy um, is seen all across everywhere, everywhere today. Um, That's why there will be people in um, East Asia who gets uh, who get surgery on their face to look a, pers- a certain type of way because there's this um, thought process that along the lines of what is beautiful is good of like, oh, someone will be really successful if these they have these types of facial features, which is just fucking sad to me because like what like 
you can't help how you're born. You can't help what your brows look like. You can't help what your forehead looks like. You can't help what your chin or your teeth look like. There's only so much cosmetic stuff you can do. It's like, it's, it's prioritizing. It get it gets real deep. I'm going to get real deep for a second. It's prioritizing certain ways people are born and that makes them a better person. And what does that sound like to you? If you're born a certain way and you have certain facial features and that makes you a better person and you deserve to have all these opportunities, that's getting into some really shitty territory, in my opinion. That's very gross thought process to have. So um, you can see that also uh, if you want to learn more about the... um, what is beautiful is good thought fallacy. If you go and look up any kind of video essay by um, trusted sources or articles, you can look up something called quote, pretty privilege, end quote. And that is a good way to get more information on what I'm talking about. But that leads into like, the whole witch depiction here of like, oh, if you're a good girl, and you follow all the rules, and you look a certain way, then you can't possibly be a witch because you're beautiful. And if you think for yourself and you're very worldly and you you're critical of society and you are really curious about certain topics and you have all these goals, well, that makes you an ugly person, which then makes you a witch, which then makes you evil. It's like, okay, we've got some pretty distinct pipelines going on here. And then last up, the broomstick again. Okay, so this one, I'm having trouble finding exact sources for this. So take this with a grain of salt. But I remember learning, and this was not in the Waking the Witch book, I don't think. Um, Although it has been years since I read it. So maybe it would do me good to read it again. It was a very wonderful book. So I wouldn't mind that. But I thought for a little while, there would be something where, um, like, okay, so the the etymology, which I'm giving you a rough version of, take all of what I'm about to say with a grain of salt, because I'm kind of um, summarizing what I know, and it might not be a 1000% accurate here. But your uterus um, has like, the root word of like, hyster. Um, And so that's why like, there's a hysterectomy when you get Um, depending on the type of hysterectomy you get, it's usually involving uh, removing the uterus, but maybe some other organs. Um, Someone who is hysterical back in the day, now it means someone who's really funny, or who's like very flamboyant with their like laughter and cheer. But back in the day, it was like a medical term to say that it was specifically a cis woman who wasn't acting appropriately, whatever that means, like that could be like smiling too much. That could be having really bad menstrual pain, just so you know. But if you look up hysterics or hysterical um, and what like qualified someone to do that, then uh, very interesting stuff will pop up. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that then, and this is very upsetting to me and and a bit difficult to think about, um, if someone was said that they were hysterical, the doctor was like, oh, you know what you need to do? You need to orgasm. But should you do that on your own? No, I'll help you out with that. So these gross doctors would like sexually arouse their poor patients um, and cause them to have um, an orgasm in whatever way, shape or form, which just another side note to the side note, just because somebody undergoes a sexual um, situation with somebody that um, is unwanted 
um, and is harmful and they orgasm, it's just a body reaction like sneezing or bleeding. It You can't help it. So that doesn't mean that somebody wanted that to happen or not. Um, it doesn't mean that it felt good. It doesn't mean anything like that. So I really want to like make that distinction made here. But what they would do, the doctor or the clinician would do that to the woman. And then what would happen is that women were like, okay, well, I don't want this gross doctor to do that. Um, But I do like the feeling of it. So they would use household items to cause them to orgasm and use that to masturbate instead. And so like, that's why the whole sitting on the uh, dryer or the washer machine, I don't know which one, um, was like a thing. It's like, oh, I'll do the laundry. And it was like, oh, this feels nice. Or um, I think that's why... I believe that's why the vibrator, the dildo was created was like a doctor made it. So he's like, oh, I can't keep up with all these hysterical women here. You can do this yourself. And he's he sold like some sort of um, self-pleasure something or the other, which I think is interesting that it started off as like a medical device. Um, Very interesting. But where this all I'm bringing it back to the beginning here where it all started Sometimes I remember learning. I can't find the exact article, though, so take this with a grain of salt. Uh, That's where women would masturbate using broomsticks. Um, And I think that's very, very interesting. And so, like, these crazed, hysterical women who need to use broomsticks, you can see why that could become intertwined with witch imagery and flying off on their broomstick, which I'm like, go, girl, do whatever you want to (laughs) do. you do you boo, you know, like whatever. Um, But I think that's very interesting how those symbolisms would show up. So I love looking at the symbolism of witches. I actually wanted this to be a um, a special episode at one point, but I'm, I've been doing a good job keeping these concise and not flying off on tangents. I say this after going through five tangents this episode. Um, It was all related, I swear, though. You saw how I circled back in my ADHD free association way. Um, But the roots of symbolism for witches in centuries of history, literature, and folklore is very cool. Um, Lots of cultural beliefs, but then again, in recent times, lots of empowerment. Um, There's the modern interpretations that are challenging those traditional stereotypes. And And it continues, the witch continues to captivate us, you know, as our collective conscious, our imagination. Very cool. And looking at these origins can help us look at where these kinds of stories and folklore came from, and why seers back in the day are now seen as a certain way today. So thank you for listening. I really love talking to you and I will get to tell you more next week. Thanks to all you spooky souls out there for listening to Creepy Core and Folklore. Follow on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok if you're looking for more uncanny content. If you have your own tales to tell, you can email creepycoreandfolklore at gmail.com. If you liked this, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts or tell a friend who might enjoy these stories to spread the word. If you're interested in dark fantasy, check out my Hollowverse series. Ashes is available now in paperback and ebook on Amazon and audiobook on Audible. And the sequel is underway. I'm Iona Wayland, and I'll see you next time.